Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. So last week, we spoke about a major act of sabotage, the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines. And one week later, there's a whole other infrastructure attack to discuss, and that is the uh, bombing of the bridge linking Russia and Crimea. No doubt now that Ukraine was behind it. In fact, uh, the New York Times just reporting speaking to a senior Ukrainian official uh, who told the Times this, quote, according to Times, the official speaking on the condition of anonymity added that Ukraine's intelligence services had orchestrated, had orchestrated the explosion using a bomb loaded onto a truck being driven across the bridge. So this was basically a suicide bombing. And the question is, did the driver even know that he was participating in a terrorist attack like this? Uh, that remains unclear. But certainly this was a, uh, a really bold move and a big blow to Russia. And now I'm personally um, expecting the kind of escalation that Russia has, I think, held off on so far in terms of going after civilian infrastructure. I've often spoken about that passage in the New York Times from a few weeks ago, where it talked about Western officials being baffled that Russia has avoided targeting civilian targets. Uh, the, uh, and the passage said this, this is in the Times last month. Some American officials expressed concern that the most dangerous moments are yet to come, as Mr. Putin has avoided escalating the war in ways that have at times baffled Western officials. He has made only limited attempts to destroy critical infrastructure or to target Ukrainian government buildings. And with the Ukrainian government now taking credit for going after one of Putin's, you know, pet projects, the bridge linking Russia to Crimea, I personally uh, expect that to change, although, although who knows? It's hard to predict what happens in war. Now, let me, since these are very bleak times, and in a second we're going to get to what Joe Biden said this week, but let me actually uh, go to a quickly, for a breath of fresh air, for a voice of reason in a political establishment that is united on both parties behind uh, continuing this proxy war. But here is a rare exception and a, a rare voice of reason. And it's his name. The speaker is none other than Donald Trump. Here he is last night. We must demand the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III, and there will be nothing left of our planet, all because stupid people didn't have a clue they didn't have a clue. They don't understand. They really don't understand. I rebuilt our military. I rebuilt our nuclear power. They don't understand what they're dealing with, the power of nuclear. They have. So that is Trump standing out as on this issue. And I stress on this issue, the only voice of reason inside the American political establishment. When you have pretty much uh, both parties, except for a fringe in the Republican Party, uh, calling for more war. I mean, we just had Congress pr approve another $12.7 billion. Every single Democrat, of course, voting for that. And here's Trump pointing out the obvious that unless we have a peaceful end, we will end up in World War III. And he's also demanding immediate negotiations. I haven't seen anybody else say that um, on the Democratic side. Ro Khanna has kind of hinted at it, but every time he says it, that's after he's voted for a new round of funding for the proxy war to send off more weapons. And, you know, as I pointed out before, of course, Trump, I think, bears major responsibility 
for this crisis insofar as he's responsible for his policies. Because again, Trump shipped weapons to Ukraine that Obama wouldn't send because Obama didn't want to further inflame the proxy war he started uh, and didn't want to arm neo-Nazis. Trump also killed the INF Treaty, which was a major grievance that Russia had and they tried to address in their draft treaty to the U.S. last December, shortly before Russia invaded. Uh, And so, you know, Trump, while um, he claims now he wants peace, he did have a major role in bringing us this war. At the same time, though, you have to ask, would this be happening if he was in power? If he's willing to say stuff like this, you know, um, I would take that over what Biden's saying, because what is Biden saying? He's talking about that we've never been closer to Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis and sort of not taking into account that he has a major role in that, that it's not just one guy, Vladimir Putin, bringing us closer to Vladimir, to Armageddon. It's also his opponent, uh, which is which is the U.S., uh, because they are responsible ultimately for the direction of this proxy war. Biden also made what I think is a pretty reckless comment where he said that Putin, quote, is not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons, because his military, you might say, is significantly underperforming. That's what Biden said. Now, no time to get into the whole, all the details, but Biden is being um, reckless here because Putin has not said that he might use tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. Biological and chemical weapons, certainly not. Uh, Putin said none of that at all. Now, it is commonly thought that Putin threatened the use of tactical nuclear weapons, but and I actually thought this too, so I understand that mistake. But if you go back and look at Vladimir Putin's speech, he never mentions nuclear, and he talks about we have weapon systems that are more advanced than uh, than our uh, than, than others, and that's a reference not to nuclear weapons. That's a reference to these uh, missiles that Putin developed or that Russia developed a few years ago, which is not nuclear. So it's irresponsible and reckless to be claiming that Putin is saying stuff that he's not. You can It's fair enough to call him out for the bellicose claims that he does make, and he has made them, but he shouldn't be mischaracterized, especially when you're talking about nuclear weapons. And the Russian doctrine remains that Russia will not use nuclear weapons unless the existence of their country is threatened or unless somebody uses nuclear weapons against them first, which is different than the U.S., which actually has more leeway for when nuclear weapons can can be used. Now, Biden also said something that I guess could be seen as encouraging when he talks about we're trying to think about giving Putin an off uh, an off ramp or thinking about what an off ramp for Putin could be that would allow him to not lose too much space and stay in power. And that's encouraging in the sense that Biden is a guy that previously said that for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power back in March. Uh, and that was at the t- same time that Lloyd Austin said the U.S. goal in Ukraine is to weaken Russia. So if Putin is actually seriously engaging in talks or consideration of an off-ramp, that's encouraging. The only problem is there's no sign of that whatsoever at all. Uh, The bridge just got blown up. I have a hard time believing that the U.S. didn't sign off on that. Um, Although just a few days ago, the U.S. intelligence community leaked uh, a claim to the New York Times, planted a story in the New York Times claiming that they had no idea uh, beforehand about the assassination of the daughter of Alexander Dugan. And uh, especially now, given this <laughs> attack in Crimea, I wonder if this, I have to wonder if that claim was planted just for that sake, to give the U.S. 
some plausible some plausible deniability as if they don't have any idea about the actions that Ukraine takes because a suicide truck bombing is even more audacious than a car bombing that kills the daughter of uh, Alexander Dugan. So I can't trust the U.S. claim that they didn't know about. And the same thing with, uh, the, with, with the daughter as well. But uh, so that's happening. So that's not quite an off ramp if you're blowing up a major bridge. Uh, the U.S. is also, you know, putting more money into the proxy war, of course, plans now for a commander in Germany at a German air base to lead the mission similar to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And in fact, the New York Times reports this recently. Um, White House and military leaders are transitioning to a sustainable model Kiev can depend on for an open-ended war with Russia. And the Times goes on, this warfare, quote, will be roughly modeled on U.S. train and assist efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan over the past two decades. So it doesn't quite sound like there's an off-ramp here from the Biden administration if they're planning on modeling their open-ended war with Russia, in the Times' words, on their campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, which went on for 20 years. So that's uh, where we're at right now. And it's a scary time. It's uh, even scary to me that the only voice of reason inside you know, the upper echelons of U.S. politics is a guy named Donald Trump. That should make everybody uh, pretty scared, I think, at this time. And for Europe, I should add, and then we'll open it up to calls, that there's, there seems to be no relief at all right now from the consequences of going along with the proxy war. So you had Antony Blinken declare that the bombing of Nord Stream is a tremendous strategic opportunity. And Blinken also said that, but, you know, we do realize that our allies are facing, quote, a difficult winter ahead. So Blinken did acknowledge that. And he said, we'll do what we can, possibly can, to help them. Well, you know, as I've written about today on my Substack, uh, the European allies of the U.S. are quickly learning that there are limits on what the U.S. can possibly do to help them. Because the EU is now warning that the continent faces blackouts in the wintertime uh, with heating, electricity, and even the mobile networks, like the cell phone networks in Europe, might face blackouts. That's a warning from the EU. Uh, Germany's energy regulator also just announcing that unless people reduce gas and their individual consumptions in their homes and their business by you know at least 10%, that we will not be able to avoid a gas emergency. And Germany's economy minister made a really extraordinary claim this week. It was reported in the, in the Financial Times, but I didn't see it elsewhere. He says that U.S. gas suppliers are charging, quote, astronomical prices. And this is mo mostly for the liquefied natural gas that uh, was supposed to replace Russian gas, at least according to what U.S. policymakers have said. And so already Germany's economy minister is you know, saying that the, the U.S. solidarity is coming in the form of astronomical prices for for the gas that's being shipped over from the U.S. So that's Europe. And uh, they are facing a very, very uh, tough winter, to say the least, uh, unless some kind of solution is brought. And, you know, that possibility is what I think motivated whoever bombed the Nord Stream pipelines. Because, you know, as we're entering the winter months, Europe was in a more precarious situation, especially Germany, which has always been the most reluctant member of the proxy war alliance. It took a lot to get Germany on board. Right up until the very end, they were trying to negotiate a solution with Putin. There's that you know, uh, notable case where it was reported in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year that right before Russia invaded, a few days before, 
Germany went to Zelensky and said, you know, why don't you just pledge neutrality, not joining NATO, and we'll make sure that Biden and Putin gave you security guarantees. And Zelensky said no. And that was at the same time when Biden was trying to make Germany commit to uh, to promising that Nord Stream 2 will be shut down if Russia invades. And Germany re resisted that for a long time. They refused to go along until two days before Russia invaded. Uh, and so Germany has always been reluctant about this proxy war. It still won't send over some of the weapons that other members of the alliance wanted to. And so Germany, heading into winter, had every incentive to try to negotiate a off-ramp with Russia, some sort of accommodation that could take Germany out of the proxy war equation. And I have no evidence that this, that this is what actually motivated this attack, but I have to wonder if that was on the mind of those who bombed the Nord Stream, because by taking down Nord Stream, you take away Germany's incentive to exit the proxy war coalition. Although Russia is now claiming that Nord Stream 2 could possibly be rebuilt. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's what they're saying. So who knows? Maybe some sort of off-ramp there is still possible if Germany has the will to take it. And that is not assured in a country that has, you know, sacrificed its economy or big parts of its economy to take part in the proxy war, albeit reluctantly. So we'll see. But that to me was the, the obvious motive behind the attack on uh, Nord Stream. And I'll just remind people, you know, I, I quoted earlier what the Times said about how U.S. officials fear that the most dangerous moments are yet to come. Around the same time, the Washington Post reported this, that the uh, White House strategy amounts to, quote, fueling a war with global consequences while attempting to remain agnostic about when and how Kiev might strike a deal to end it. And I think that's accurate. I do think this administration, if they're not openly hostile to peace, they're certainly agnostic about it. And it's amazing that they can stay agnostic, even as Joe Biden acknowledges that it's pushing us toward Armageddon. I just don't understand the cognitive dissonance there, but that's why I'm just a journalist and not a politician. All right. We'll take calls if there are calls there. That's enough of a rant, I think. And uh, Greg, you are first. Thank you for coming in line. Thanks for taking my uh, Sure. Do you uh, find any justification for Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Uh, okay, Greg, I recognize you. You uh, you have called in before and you, you hold very That's different true. views than mine. Yes, okay, so welcome. Uh, no, I've said I don't think it's justified. No, I think to justify a war, you have to meet an incredibly high burden of evidence. And although I'm the first to say that I think Russia was put into a corner, I think Russia has many legitimate grievances. I think Russia was provoked. I don't think Russia has proven that it exhausted all diplomatic options to avoid this war. And there are other things I think Russia could have done, as I've talked about a lot. Uh, and there are people who don't agree with me who think that Russia really had no choice. But uh, that is my view that based on the evidence I've seen that, yes, I don't think the war is justified because I don't think Russia has met the burden, the high burden of proof you need to be able to launch a war like that. You don't find that justification to say Russia was provoked and pushed into it? No, because you can, you know, there's a difference to me between understanding something and justifying it. And uh, I don't endorse 
an invasion where you send people off to die and you, and you kill people uh, unless you can meet a really, really high burden of proof, which I just don't think Russia has met. But I'm also not going to pretend that I don't think there's provocation. Uh, that would require me ignoring the coup in 2014, uh, the expansion of NATO to Russia's borders, the killing of arms control treaties that began under George W. Bush, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, and then the killing of the INF treaty under Trump. And that's allowed the U.S. to place offensive weaponry in missile sites in Poland and Romania uh, that can hit Russia, while also, with the killing of the INF treaty, developing all these missiles that used to be banned for you know three decades. Uh, and that is a major threat to Russia's security. I don't see how... Uh, some has uh, someone could see that uh, otherwise. Um, and also, of course, after the 2014 coup, you have a war in the Donbass. You have accords that are reached to end that war, notably Minsk II. And it's my opinion that Ukraine refused to implement them. And in the words of Poroshenko, the Ukrainian uh, president uh, who signed Minsk used Minsk II to stall for time and build up for war with Russia. So I can't ignore that background. Those are all just excuses. That's all those are. It's it's nutty. But I have a different view of the um the Greg, bridge do you think they're down. factual or do you think they're factual or not? <laughs> some factual? nuclear weapons, some rules on nuclear weapons were changed and so Russia had to invade Ukraine. It's no, just, no, okay. That's, no, no, no. that's strange credulity. It, no, again, but, I, but you again, know, you're gonna repeat those over and over every time. No, but you just want to no, move no, no, on to the second. bridge. You're you're mischaracterizing my my stance then because i just told you i don't think it justifies the invasion what i am saying though is i'm not to pretend that those things don't exist can you grasp that difference do you think the invasion should be condemned by who by all people with a moral compass i think uh yeah well yes i'm not in the business of condemning because i'm not the un but i think uh if you want to condemn the invasion, there's a completely justified grounds for that. Yes. Do you think everyone should who has a moral compass? Uh, well, look, I've spoken to Ukrainian friends who were living under um, really tough conditions for the last eight years. And I'm going to condemn them for welcoming Russia coming in to, in their, in their view, to stop the terror that they lived under. I'm not going to go that far. But... Personally, if you ask me, I think the war is unjustified. I'm also, but I'm not going to condemn someone who has been living under it, living under bombardment for the last eight years, and sees Russia coming in to help them. I can't condemn. I'm them. asking you to condemn Russia for invading in the first place, for running the war for seven months, for the thousands and thousands of killed and raped, and the torture torture chambers found all over Kharkiv, and the uh, forced deportation of Ukrainians into Russia, I'm asking you to condemn those. I condemn all atrocities, no matter who commits them. Well, this bridge going down was a great morale boost for Ukraine and really demoralizing for Russia. It's as big as the sinking of uh, the Moskva and uh, anything that's a morale boost for Ukraine as they fight off this invasion is a good thing in my book. Okay, I got that, I got that. Anything else? One last, yes, uh, you know, about nuclear blackmail, uh, someone, a better mind than both of us, said, when you give in to nuclear blackmail, you empower dictators to do it again, and you encourage worldwide nuclear proliferation, 
and you make nuclear war much, much more likely. Yeah. Who was that? Tim, Tim Snyder? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course he would say that, but I don't think actually. Yeah, of course he would. He's only an expert on Central and Eastern Europe. Going back yeah, he decades. is. He's also he's also a, a devout proxy warrior who's been, I think, whitewashing this proxy war, not just in the last uh, seven months, but for the last eight years. And um, yeah, I have a lot of you're a pretty good proxy warrior yourself there on Russia's side. Uh, except I don't support a proxy war. I, yeah. I, I don't. I want. I actually <laughs> want to see negotiations for this to end. I want the suffering to end if, for everybody. But if thank you say you, Greg. Timothy Snyder is, then you are. Okay, we'll disagree on that. Greg, thank you for being the first caller. I appreciate it. Hi, Amanda. hi, Aaron. Hi, there. hi, hi. Um, can I just start off with a with a quotation from Cornell West? Do you mind? Sure. Sure, go ahead. I, I cannot be an optimist because I'm a prisoner of hope. I mean, yeah. that man, wow. So I was just flipping through my notes and I spotted it. But um, I, the thing I wanted to say is thank you so much for the interview that you and Max did with, um, with Jeffrey Sachs. And, and I really appreciated the fact that Jeffrey Sachs is not backing down when he started getting pushback on some of these things, that he's just speaking truth. And I'm so glad that you guys are there to, to ask the good questions. And, and again, I, I couldn't think of any questions that you guys didn't ask. And, and I know, I know it's not, I know it's not the most productive use of time to just fangirl you, but I do appreciate what what you do, and I know that it's it's not always easy, and I always pass it on whenever something good comes through, which is I wouldn't know anything about foreign policy except that I like listening to you since you've been on democracy now. So you you make a you make a big difference in this world, and I'm glad that you're here. Well, Regardless of your opinion about Ukraine or Russia or anything else, I like that you're not anti. I like that you're anti-war. Yeah, for well, everything. I mean, I'm, thanks, Amanda, and uh, thanks for reminding me about the Jeffrey Sachs interview. We just published it today. I agree. I thought it was great, and I put a link to it for those who haven't seen it. Uh, he. Everybody, a, go listen. Yeah, it good. was so good. Yeah. 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 What What was your favorite question that you got to ask him that you were like really glad you got to ask? Uh, I, or, or, or an answer that was surprising or you didn't think you would get, I, I wasn't surprised by anything. I, you know, I just, Uh it it was my first time. I think it's my first time interviewing him and I've always been a, I've I've always really admired him. So it was was great to meet him, you know, and, uh, and it's great, you know, as you say, he has not backed down and it's great when you, when you interact with people like that, because, you know, the, the way our system works is there are so few dissenters. And those who dissent, because there's not that many of us, um, have to deal with this constant effort to delegitimize us and intimidate us and call us names. And, you know, like, if you look at, like, my Wikipedia page, it's there's, like, this battle going on between people who would like it just to remain neutral language and people who want to deface it and, you know, put in all these slanders about me and the gray zone. And so, and Jeffrey Sachs has, has faced that, but it's harder to attack people like him because he's so credentialed. He's in the Academy. He's chaired all these important panels. Uh, he's at Columbia and it's, but when you're in that kind of position, the incentives to back down are that much greater because you're around all these people who want you to cave, you know, 
and who will threaten to shun you from whatever, all the institutions that you travel in. And he hasn't backed down. And I, I really appreciate that because it's just so easy to crumble in the face of attacks like that. For sure. And, the, and, and for yourself as well. And, and I just, I, everybody needs to go and listen to that. And I hope that other people in the independent news get a chance to interview him too, so that more people see the credibility level that he's willing to go on shows that other people keep dissing for no reason, no good reason, except for their own selfish, whatever strategy thing they're doing. But yeah. anyway, I will let you get to the rest of the calls. Thank you, Aaron. So thanks much. a minute. Thanks a lot. Okay. Olu. Hello, Alan. How are you? Hi there. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. This is this is this is a question about Tucker Carson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed. Do you think Tucker Carson is like like criticizing Ukraine the whole? war because it's because because of the democrats are doing it would he have done the same thing if it was the republicans that's a fair question uh i think you can definitely make that criticism about some of the republicans in congress like would they be voting against the proxy war if trump was overseeing it i personally doubt it with tucker carlson look um under trump he was he had, he had on people including myself who were very critical of trump's policies and the role of Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. And so I uh, don't think for him it's just partisan. Now, in his case, he wants to see uh, more U.S. resources devoted to fighting China. Fighting China right? Right? I think that's, yes. that's one of his main motives, not, not Russia. Russia. But I don't, I don't think from a partisan angle that, that, that really is what drives him. That's my impression, that's my impression at least. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Have a nice day. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. All right. All right. Uh, Dave. Yeah, on your bottom. There you go. <clears throat> Hello, Aaron. Um, thank you for thank you for your reports. I'm listening to you and Grant Greenwald and uh, Trace Michael Trace as well. So, I'm really, thank you for your reports. Um, just a uh, just couple of questions. Um, how do you feel what's going to happen during the winter, um, I mean, in Europe? And uh, if you have any prediction, obviously, it's uh, a little bit hard. And on the ground as well. It seems like Ukraine is gaining some ground. Um, they're advancing on, uh, on the south and also east, although uh, there's been some reports of um, um, Wagner advancing in Bakhmut. So, yeah. That's, uh, these are my questions. Thank you. Well, look, uh, here I have to acknowledge my, my limitations. I didn't think Russia would invade Ukraine. I got that wrong. So to make predictions for the wintertime is, you know, I have to acknowledge that my track record is, uh, is not perfect, to say the least. But, um, you know, if you speak to people like, look, so, so you have the consensus in the media right now that Russia has been handed some major defeats that that's why Putin is mobilizing. And yeah, I mean, it's very clear that Russia um, had a much, uh, had a very warped perception of how easy it would be to take over Ukraine because uh, they didn't send in relatively that many forces and they've suffered some major losses. Uh, and so now they're having to mobilize 
to be able to make up for the ground that they've lost. But if you speak to people like Scott Ritter and Doug McGregor, who I take very seriously, uh, I think they've had a lot of valuable things to say about the military situation. Uh, they say that these offensives that Ukraine has won recently, although they were significant, they also entailed a major sacrifice where, you know, Ukraine lost a lot of uh, soldiers in those fights, whereas Russia, by contrast, didn't, according to them. And so they think that that uh, portends basically a scenario where Russia is going to lay back, build up its forces, mobilize all these recruits it's now called up, and then uh, launch major assaults. And um, I take that prospect seriously, especially when you have you know U.S. officials expressing concern about that. You know, I, I quoted that passage from the New York Times where they said that they fear that the worst moments are yet to come uh, because Russia so far has been relatively restrained. That's that's from the Times. So that to me is a plausible outcome that this Russia will escalate this war. Uh, and uh, if it's true that Ukraine has burned through a lot of its forces, I don't see what it will do. Now, it does have on its side a lot of NATO weaponry. And Ukraine is basically a NATO army right now. It's not even a Ukrainian army. It's a given the scale of U.S. involvement and, and weaponry and and supply chains and all that stuff, the supply routes. It's you know NATO is involved in this war, and so will that be enough to help Ukraine sustain itself? Maybe it's possible. You know, it's possible this could be enough to drive out Russia from from all the territories occupied. Um, I personally doubt it, but we'll see. I mean, war is very unpredictable, and as for Europe. You know, to me, it's very scary um, in terms of the, the warnings about blackouts and just the idea of people reducing consumption. It's difficult to do in the wintertime. You know, if you have if you have if you're caring for, for loved ones, you know, and they're cold, it's difficult to get people to take cold showers and go without heat. It's it's just not something that Westerners especially are used to. So and I think that Putin in his calculations, I think, is counting on that, on people to turn against the war. There's already been demonstrations in Europe, you know, calling for an end to the sanctions. I, th I think part of Russia's strategy is counting on that to help them, uh, you know, weaken the alliance. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I totally agree with you. And yes, um, I definitely think that he's using that as a weapon. Um, and when he comes about um, uh, the troops on the ground, it's uh, very clear that um, Russia didn't have actually a proper army. Let's let's uh, let's say that uh, we can see that is formed more in um, more of LPR and uh, DPR, so the uh, the republics in Donetsk and Luhansk, plus the Wagner Group, which is uh, which is a PMC. Um, so I think when when it comes about winter, all these three hundred thousand that they've been announced once they've been trained. Um, I think it's going to be a very hard winter on both sides with huge losses. Yeah, that's the unfortunate prospect. Yep, I agree. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to read your most recent article. Um, I wanted to ask you about the recent referendum that was held in the Donbass region, uh -huh. I think. Um, I saw mainstream media reporting it as like, uh, basically people were forced to vote on, like with a gun to their, a gun pointed at them. Something like along those lines, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think that's accurate? And 
Uh, the other question is, I saw you on the Jimmy Dore show mm -hmm. this week. Uh, one question I was always wanted to ask you is, what are your thoughts? Just because you guys kind of touched on it a bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on the JFK assassination? <laughs> if you can go into that, like just what are your, what are your thoughts? Do you think that's, uh, there's a single shooter? Just uh, curious to hear it. Okay, so on the votes in the Donbass, I don't think, no, I don't think people were voting with a gun held to their head. I think that's pretty hard to pull off, uh, you know, in all these areas. I just don't find that very plausible. And I do think there's a large portion of the population there that considers themselves Russian and wants to be a part of Russia, especially after eight years of war where they've been under assault from the uh, U.S.-backed government. And uh, there's been no resolution, even though the Minsk Accords were signed in 2015, and even though Zelensky campaigned on ending the war. You know, that's why many people actually in the Donbass voted for him. He, if you look at the maps from Ukraine from Zelensky's victory in 2019, huge support from the Donbass regions because he was campaigning to end the war, and he quickly abandoned that. Uh, because I think, I mean, either he was completely cynical and that promise was a fraud. And, you know, the prospects of that, I think, are actually pretty high, given who his main backer was, Koyla Moisky, who also happens to be the main backer of the Azov Battalion. So what are the odds that a president who was backed by the same guy behind the Azov Battalion is going to want to, you know, end the war that the Azov Battalion is being a frontline fighter for in attacking um Russian Ukrainians in the Donbass. It's so and the, the idea that Zelensky was just being cynical the whole time, I think is pretty high. But even if he wanted to, even if he was sincere, he had no chance because every time he did something in the, in the direction of peace, the far right would hold big rallies and there'd be violence, he, there'd be threats. And the U.S. didn't have his back. And Stephen F. Cohen, in an interview we did in, in two years ago, uh, no, sorry, three years ago, this month, warned me about exactly that. It says, unless the U.S. has Zelensky's back, there's no way he'll be able to make peace. And, and of course, the U.S. had the back of the far right instead. So, but I, so I do think there are people in the Donbass, obviously, and I don't know what percentage do want to be a part of Russia. But the, the part that I think, you know, cast doubt is the fact that a lot of people have left, they've fled. And the odds are that people who have fled would not have wanted to be a part of, of Russia. I think that's a fair assumption to make. And so this kind of vote, I think, is the kind that um, needs to be done under an internationally supervised referendum, to, like to give it legitimacy at least. If you want to give it legitimacy, you need to have some sort of international supervision. With Crimea, I think it's a bit different because there's, there's just no doubt that uh, the majority of the population wanted to be a part of Russia. And also there was no fighting there. I mean, Russia took over Crimea with no one getting shot, like not even a bullet. So... Uh, and that reflects the support that Russia has from the population there. But Donbass is different. I don't think you can say everybody there wants to be a part of Russia. So I think um, the claims that it's all a sham, I don't go that far. I don't accept that. But I also think that to grant it legitimacy, you need to have some sort of international mechanism to uh, to supervise it. Okay. Although, look, I've also, you know, I've never been there. I've never been to Ukraine, never been to Russia. And there are journalists who are in the Donbass right now. Uh, who are taking very huge risks with their lives. And uh, they're the ones who I think would have the best insight on this, not me. I'm just sitting in the U.S. And in terms of JFK, I've never looked into it. Um, I've been skeptical that there was some, <laughs> you know, huge conspiracy, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been very influenced by reading Noam Chomsky. His book, Rethinking Camelot, had a very negative portrayal of Kennedy and, you know, really 
undermine the portrayal that some people have of him that he was trying to take up take on the deep state and Chomsky I think uh, showed in my opinion some very convincing counter counter arguments for that and my and uh, Seymour Hirsch has a book too as well about JFK that also paints a pretty uh, unflattering picture of him so that doesn't mean that there wasn't some sort of conspiracy or cover-up I just the question for me is why and it it could have been something as um, relatively, uh, you know, uh, trivial as some sort of personal thing or some sort of criminal thing that JFK had with the mafia. I don't know, but I, I don't. I just don't necessarily assume that it was because he was going to take on the deep state and that's why he was killed. That's the part that I have a hard time believing. But I'm open to it, and certainly the file should be released. I mean, and that's what Trump said he would do. And that's what should happen. We should get the documents so we can decide for ourselves. Gotcha, Aaron. Yeah, thank you. That's all <clears throat> very interesting. Thanks for answering my question. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Fahim. Or Fahim. No, it's Fahim. Fahim, there we go. Yes. That's why I wrote Fahim that everyone's dream. Ah, okay. <laughs> Just for you. <laughs> I missed that. So um, anyway, Aaron, uh, you all lately covered uh, Anthony Blinken saying three times it's a tremendous opportunity. Uh, one of the uh, things I was uh, looking at was the uh, how much Russia has been importing or exporting gas to Europe over the past uh, few years. And the export volume has been as high as like 16 odd billion uh, cubic feet uh, per day mm. uh, to last uh, to 2021 was 10.9 billion cubic feet uh, per day. And the U.S. total uh, capacity for the liquefaction plants, not regasification, liquefaction uh, to liquefy and then um, uh, export it, is 10.9 is 10 uh, billion uh, cubic feet per day. So, uh, I mean, what, tremendous opportunity uh, aside, how is the U.S. going to make up? Uh, th that means basically the entire plants are working at full load just to supply Europe. And I haven't looked at uh, which uh, countries they have uh, uh, agreements with in terms of like sales already they have uh, promised. But I'm uh, curious as to how, how does the U.S. plan on supplying uh, uh, the uh, gas to uh, Europe because the maximum capacity is b barely meeting uh, Europe's uh, needs. Yeah, and I, you know, I write about this in my new article where um, the uh, uh, German economy minister is already complaining that the U.S. is charging astronomical prices and accusing the U.S. of profiteering off of the crisis in Europe. And there is a uh, there's somebody with a major private equity group that invests in energy companies who says that there's no bailout coming from the U.S. because they just cannot. There's only so much that they can supply. So that's a good question. I mean, you, you you would know better than I. I mean, does the U.S. have the capacity at all to well, meet I've looked up the LNG uh, liquefaction uh, facilities on uh, line. I was just doing a search on like, okay, what's the total uh, uh, cubic feet per uh, day? And it comes out to like 10.86 to the uh, second decimal place. But the Europe's uh, consumption uh, from uh, Russia in 2021 was uh, 10.9. And in, I think in 2019, it was like 16 billion cubic feet per day. 
And so that's where I was like, okay, I've uh, worked around enough of these LNG liquefaction uh, facilities from the feed, the front end uh, engineering design phase to the completion side where I know that you don't uh, build these plants overnight. I mean, these are highly intensive uh, capital uh, uh, pro projects, so it's not like you can crank out a LNG uh, liquefaction facility uh, in uh, a couple of months. Uh, so that's where I'm like, okay, where is the gas uh, uh, going to uh, come uh, from? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to just uh, do a simple math uh, of what's the output and what's uh, the need. Uh, so that's where I'm uh, curious as to uh, if you've looked into it or if you've looked into who does the U.S. currently have contracts uh, with. Because that's one thing I was going to look up uh, uh, later on tonight and the next uh, few days uh, for who do we have already obligations uh, with. Because you've got to supply those guys also at the same time. You just can't say, okay, well, tough luck, uh, just suck it up and deal with it. Yeah. I'm not going to supply yeah. Europe. So, That's all very interesting. I don't have any answers, but I would love to know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll do the research for you. Hey, sounds good. <laughs> sounds okay. Good. I have to finish my book, so unfortunately, that's a project I can't take on. So uh, I'd love to know what you find. So thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Okay, Michelle. There you go. Hi. Hey. hey, Aaron. I appreciate all your work you do. So, the war is not going until Putin's expectations. Do you think this will lead to his demise eventually? Uh, I can't predict something like that. You know, certainly if there are people who want that in Washington and that's their goal. But, uh, you know, if you can trust the polls out of Russia, and I guess that's not something to just assume you can, but the polls do show that he has a lot of support. And I don't think that's entirely fabricated from what my Russian friends tell me. He does have a strong base of support. And so um, I think it would have to go pretty badly for Putin to be overthrown. I mean, I think the U.S. gamble, the U.S. hope was that they would crush the economy with sanctions and stealing Russia's uh, currency reserves, foreign currency reserves. And that would do the trick. But that hasn't happened. So given that, it, it's hard to see Putin being any closer to being overthrown. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Okay. Michelle. Hey. Hi. Um, I was wondering exploitation of these European countries with the cost of natural gas coming from America. I guess, like, my question is what did they think would happen considering what America does to the people who live here? I, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Great question. I, I don't understand what these European leaders are thinking. I, I don't know. Is it, is there something we're missing? Maybe there's some kind of secret plan, like they've gotten some energy, energy source we don't know about yet, or they've stocked up enough where they actually really think that they can make it. I don't know. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. Uh, given the consequences, especially to Germany so far, which is the most important economy in Europe, it doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, look, I look at the leaders in the U.S. and I think they're driven by something psychological. They have this real animus towards Russia. That means they're unable to think rationally about it. They're un unwilling to entertain the possibility of compromise and diplomacy and all the things that politicians should be doing. 
And I just don't know if that's the, certainly that's the case in some countries in Europe, like the Baltic states. There's a real current of hatred towards Russia, and that goes back to the Soviet Union. But otherwise, like Germany and like the current um, chancellor of Germany, Schultz, has been so radically different than Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel made the deal for Nord Stream with Russia, uh, resisted U.S. pressure, and you know, and knew that the U.S. would try to kill her project, but didn't care because she decided it was that important to Germany's national interest. And Schultz, after he's taken over, he's allowed himself to be um, just manhandled by the U.S. And then the Green Party in Germany says things like, I don't know if you saw the clip of the foreign minister of Germany where she said, it's going to get hard for our German voters, but I don't care because I want to be there for Ukraine no matter what my voters think. Something like that. It's just crazy. So I don't know what, what guides people like that. Uh, and it might just be, maybe they have some secret plan we don't know about where they can come out on top and not have to uh, worry about the consequences of cutting off Russian energy. But if not, then it's just they're driven by uh, some kind of pathology <laughs> and animus toward Russia, which is just not the way to govern a country. And I guess I guess my only question then is, I don't know, I can't I guess here in America, sometimes it can be hard to tell if it's animus towards Russia, considering they installed Yeltsin and like Putin came out of that, or if it's like the need to have an enemy to drive, you know, the spending to drive the, and, and it makes me wonder if these other countries are just so scared of, I don't know, America doesn't really act like a rational actor in a lot of these instances. No. And it does make me wonder, like, are they doing it because it's pathological or are they afraid of what America would do or what turning against? And I guess they're not de-dollarized. Like everyone's connected. On yeah. That side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you go to like Russia and you read some of the interviews with the main intelligence officials behind it, like um, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and Andrew McCabe and James Clapper, you can find in all these cases ex- examples of like a real bigotry towards Russians. Like Peter yeah. Strzok said, he texted a page like, I hate the cheating mother effing Russians, you know, effing mother effing savages. And Lisa Page, you know, told some congressional committee that, you know, uh, Russia stands against everything that we believe in. They're our enemy. And that's what motivated them to go after Trump a little bit when he, when they heard Trump say things like we should get along with Russia. Like they couldn't process that thought in their Russia addled brains. And so that led them to justify opening up an investigation of a president and his campaign as Russian assets. So that's a case where just they threw any sense of rationality out the window and engaged in crazy behavior because of their animus. And I think, you know, so there's that cold war element. They just, people still still see Russia through that way. There's the need, as you said, for an enemy. And also I think there's bitterness towards Russia inside the national security state. And I can't prove this, but, I think there's real bitterness towards Russia because Russia ruined the CIA's dirty war in Syria. Uh, it yeah. looked like in 2014, 2015, that Assad was going to lose and be forced to flee. And the U.S. plan was to basically use the threat of al-Qaeda and its allies to force Assad into stepping down and letting the, some U.S.-backed leader come in in his place. Uh, and Russia came in when... You know, as John Kerry said, you know, ISIS was encroaching on Damascus and we were watching uh, that happen because, again, the U.S. strategy was to let ISIS and al-Qaeda grow 
in the hopes that that would force Assad to flee. But Russia came in and ruined that. And Russia intervened and, and destroyed the uh, advance of the sectarian death squads and ruined the dirty war for the U.S. And I think there's huge animus toward uh, uh, Russia because of that. And also because, you know, after the coup in Ukraine in 2014, Russia took Crimea, which somehow no one in the intelligence community foresaw that Russia would do that, even though, like, the majority of the population supports Russia and Russia's most important naval base is there. So, you know, I just think these factors also drive in for the need for revenge, quote unquote, against Russia. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I, and I was, I guess I was still thinking of it as that Cold War mentality, which it's like, it's not communist anymore. Where is the rationale coming from? But a lot of those people have been there for so long. And I'm thinking about our politicians who are not necessarily driving what's happening. But although I'm surprised that progressives are going along with it. Too, and I, the progressive part is just, I've never seen anything like it in my left in my lifetime. Like, not a single progressive in Congress can bring themselves to vote against funneling billions of dollars into a proxy war with a nuclear armed power, and no one's willing to call for negotiations. If you look at when they do call for negotiations, it's always so tepid, and they basically water it down to the point where it's pretty much meaningless what they're saying. They're like, yes, we should defend Ukraine, but also we should have, we should be thinking about diplomacy. But by defending Ukraine, they, they just mean, you know, pouring more weapons in and continuing along with every escalatory policy. So it doesn't make any sense. And if you look at, you know, progressive media right now, too, it's just there's very few people willing to, um, you know, offer a, a dissenting perspective, and which means showing the facts and talking about, you know, the fact that we're uh, arming a army that has neo-Nazis formally incorporated as a battalion. And, you know, just recently, Congress hosted a delegation of Azov members. God, so four, four, four years after Congress banned assistance to Azov, Congress welcomed Azov into the Capitol building. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, that and that one specifically, especially with, I mean, Rokana, who had like put forward and so many people signed on to that thing in 2018. Yep. That called out the problem. It just baffles me. I don't, I, I really don't understand it. And I guess the last thing I would say is like, what do you think of this trend? Because like, I know it was Tucker Carlson for a while, but I saw a clip of Glenn on a woman's show. I won't lie, I don't know who she was. She was blonde, but that's Fox, so she's blonde. Um, it's, and she she almost sounded anti-war in yeah. the clip, and it, it's breaking my brain. Like, yeah. Well, part of that, I think, is a partisan thing where, you know, if Trump was overseeing this war, would Fox, would people on Fox News be uh, opposed to it? I, I doubt it. But yeah, it, it is true that, look, that even before Biden came into office, we started to have this trend where on certain issues, the space for dissent was was more open on the right than it was on the left. I hate to admit that. But, you know, again, like the example I give is, you know, comparing democracy now, which to me set the standard for adversarial journalism and you know i'm biased because i used to work there for a long time but if you look at their coverage of syria and russia related stories in the last six years tucker carlson did a better job <laughs> and yeah. allowed on way more dissenters and that's just crazy it's absolutely crazy i mean msnbc cnn of course we expect them to, but even in like the progressive space 
they've let someone like Tucker Carlson be more adversarial. And that just is, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Which, which you would think people would be concerned about going into elections too, because I don't know that the support is there that they think is there for these things. It, it just seems, it seems like a mistake not to even, even strategically just have some voices who are allowed to dissent. It seems, yeah. 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 Well, and that's the Anyways, tragedy. That, that's the tragedy of Bernie Sanders. He could have seized on right. the anti-war sentiment that Trump seized on. You know, they, when Trump was on the campaign trail in 2016, he was calling out intervention, and it worked. Yeah. Like that appealed to people. And Bernie could have seized that. And instead, he went in the opposite direction and became a Russia gator. And you know, the rest is history. Thank you for the call. Thanks. Okay, Sahand. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for uh, taking the call and uh, big fan of yours. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to maybe change topics here is uh, I wanted to ask your opinion about Iran. I know you've been critical of the um, sanctions as, as an effective method to deal with that regime. Um, but, you know, that country does have a very atrocious human rights record, aside from its beef with America, who has its own fair share of issues like that. What do you think is an effective international policy to uh, deal with governments like them? I think it's mostly none of our business. And uh, I think, you know, people can provide support to any other grassroots people's movement that they want to. But in terms of governments imposing sanctions, on um, countries where the goal, no matter what is said officially, the goal is to make the population starve. I mean, there's never sanctions that hurt the targeted government. Uh, it, you know, the rulers are always fine. They have all the resources in the world. It's the people that suffer from sanctions. And that's because the policy is to make the people suffer so that uh, they rise up against their government uh, or just because people in Washington don't want to let a country recover if uh, they're, if that country defeated them. Like in the case of Syria, the dirty war is over, but yet Syria can't rebuild. It's under sanctions. There's cholera outbreaks. For no, you know, uh, even though the U.S. knows that they, their efforts for regime change are lost, but they just want to punish the country just because they can't. And so um, with Iran, you know, I, I think people should be able to give protesters you know, massive support, but I don't think our government has any moral right or any legal right to impose unilateral sanctions. I mean, if you want to impose sanctions, there's a process for that through the UN where you have to have um, a majority agree. And okay, in that case, I could see a case for it. But the idea that one government that controls the financial system can just cut off entire economies because they want to overthrow the government, I, I can't, I can't accept that. And um, yeah. look, uh, I have a lot of friends who have suffered greatly, their families have suffered greatly under the Iranian government. Uh, people who have been forced to flee, uh, people who still have family there. Um, but I don't know anyone who supports sanctions. Nobody. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm one of those people myself, yeah. actually. But, but yeah, I agree with you, with your assessment. And, you know, just this week, um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, which I'll read to you a passage of. It says this, uh, U.S. sanctions that target Iran's oil industry and financial sector are the main factor crippling the Iranian economy, cutting the country off from the dollar, most economists agree. And they show a chart that when Trump, re when, when Trump broke the Iran nuclear deal and reimposed sanctions in August 2018, 
the value of the Iranian currency just plummeted right from that point, which is the same thing. You can do the same thing in Venezuela when you look at oil production uh, right when Trump or imposed sanctions on Venezuela, oil production just sharply drops because that's what these sanctions are designed to do is just to cripple economies. But interest, but, um, but, but what's interesting is the same Wall Street Journal article says that even though economists agree that U.S. sanctions are the main factor crippling the Iranian economy, a poll of Iranians actually shows that they actually blame their government. Uh, it says this, uh, even so, about 63% of Iranians blame domestic economic mismanagement and corruption rather than sanctions for the country's financial woes, according to a poll uh, carried out a year ago by the University of Maryland and a and also Iran poll, which is a Canadian-based firm. So assuming that that figure is, is accurate, um, you have, even though economists agree that U.S. sanctions are the main factor crippling Iran's economy, most Iranians, according to this poll, don't see it that way. And that's one of the ways in which, no matter how true it is that the Iran government is corrupt, and I know they are, I've heard some horror stories about how bad it is there. But no matter how true that is still, um, you know, sanctions no, undoubtedly play a major role, if not the main role. Uh, but still, because sanctions are invisible, and because governments also don't want to really acknowledge that the U.S. can cripple them in that way, most people don't know about it. Instead, they'll, na they'll naturally blame the government that they live under. And that's a way that no matter what you feel about the Iranian government, I just think like sanctions uh, are a way for neocons to never lose because you don't have to invade a country. You don't have to send troops. Sanctions are invisible and most people don't see them. You know, it, it's hard to tell the story of sanctions on on television news. You know, it's it's not as easy as a war, but they have the same impact. But the difference is they're sort of invisible. So the people will not really realize that the U.S. is behind them. And the U.S. is the reason why they can't get certain goods and can't live a normal life. Yeah, that's that's definitely all true. Uh, I agree. I think if it needs to be done that way, it can be unilateral and, and internationally imposed. And, you know, the big majority behind that is, is going to be the most effective. Not to say that they also go behind the scenes and, and there's always exchanges within the U.S. and Iranian government. I mean, Iran-Contra was during the war, you know, years ago, that was yep. a uh, scandal that, so, um, yeah, thanks for your insights on that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Okay. Philippe. <clears throat> Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, since my, since it's my first time calling in, I just wanted to praise your work a little bit before I ask my question, just because there are a particular dimension of your work that I think perhaps don't get too much attention which is just the fact that you uh, keep uh, a focus in your reporting. And I think that's very important, you know, in lefty media space. Sometimes I think people cave into the pressure of having to comment on every single thing from trans rights to, you know, public policy. And just the fact that I think you keep to uh, the, uh, the areas that you have expertise um, and to the areas where you've done real reporting, like the OPCW leaks is, uh, is something very important for credibility and why I think you're such a trusted voice for a lot of us. Um, and well, thank you. Thank you. And, and yes, I have no interest in being like a pundit commenting on everything. It's, I can't think of anything less appealing from, for, for myself. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you recognize that. So thank you. That, that's, that's great to hear. I'm sure it's intentional as well. It's not by accident. So that's great. 
Um, and so for my question, it's a bit of an unfair question, to be honest, because uh, I don't think there can be a categorical answer for it. I think it goes a bit along the lines of what Rodrigo, the previous, uh, one of the previous scholars, was asking about the referendums. I was hearing the other day, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, who I'm sure you know, um, was commenting on the, uh, on the proxy war, or the, uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, though he recognizes the, the faults of NATO and whatnot, I think he does take a, a bit of a more critical line of what the Russian government has done than perhaps you have, even though I, I'm, I'm aware that you uh, condemn uh, Russia for choosing a military option before playing some diplomatic hardballs, uh, as they, they might have had other uh, options before choosing for the military option. So I'm aware of that, but, you know, just as a general tone, I felt like he was a bit more critical of, of uh, um, Russian government's actions. And, but he raised an interesting point, which, unfortunately, he made it as an offhand comment, so he didn't build much on it. But it was about, I think the term he used was, you know, the difference between, uh, of opinions between the local oligarchies, I think is what he used. Uh, in the Donbass, difference of opinion of these local oligarchies and the people uh, or, you know, the general population, meaning that, you know, it's not because certain separatists or certain, you know, leaderships have taken this route that this means that there is, a, especially when they are supported from the outside um, by Russia, as we know, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, um, the entire population is actually in line with, with that uh, with that thinking, and, and the reason I say that is just because there's, you know, there's a big spectrum there, right? You, you can, you know, one thing is to vote for Yanukovych in the last election. Another thing is to want to to see yourself as Russian. Uh, it's a, another thing to want to actually secede and become your own yeah. uh, republic. It's yeah. something different to join Russia. So I just wanted to know if you if you've given some thought to that. Uh, I know that Eva Barlett is on the ground in reporting there, um, but if you know if you haven't given too much thought to it, I guess, you know, if there's anyone who you've seen that has a, an interesting opinion on this. Well, look, there, uh, the limits of what I can say about it, because I've never been, but I said earlier in today's uh, show that um, I think it's very hard to, you know, say from the outside what the will of the people is there, given that, you know, a lot of people have fled. And those people, I think you can safely say, well, I don't know about safely, but I think it's fair to speculate that those people might not have voted to join Russia if they'd stayed, you know? Um, and so that's why if there was to be a vote like this, it should be internationally supervised and not done under warlike conditions. Um, but I also just don't want to deny the uh, agency of those who do consider themselves Russian. And from what I've been told, there are there's a substantial number of people who feel that way, but I just can't speak to what percentage of the population that is uh, what I what I am confident about is saying that Crimea, I think there's massive overwhelming support for joining Russia. I don't think that's controversial. I think there's only a small minority that did not want to join Russia. But as for everywhere else, I have no idea. I mean, there were votes in the uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk after the 2014 coup where they wanted to secede. And um, I don't remember. I don't know how credible those were, but I do think that they reflected some major segment of the population. And I just don't want to, I, I don't want to go too far in, in, in accept in like, for example, in, in accepting on faith, these results, but I also don't want to just dismiss them and assume that they're all, everyone there is being forced to vote at gunpoint. And most people don't want it. I, I have no idea, I guess it, it, it is my answer. Yeah. But I, yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and just to illustrate the difference a bit more is correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, the Zaporozhye region and Kherson region 
I don't think were uh, attempting to secede, right? Uh, prior to uh, the escalation in twenty in February twenty twenty two. Yeah, I think it was uh, just I think it was just uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Yeah, yeah. So so that that's, that I think illustrates well the difference between you know maybe I see myself as Russian, maybe I voted for Yanukovych, but you know not necessarily that this is, translates into I would like this escalation to have taken place or I would like to actually be part of Russia. Um, so, it, but just to be clear, I wouldn't raise this point. It's just because you know the, the people in the Donbass has made are made invisible by mainstream yes, media. Absolutely, commenting on it. Yeah, that I think us on the left kind of have like a tendency of trying to highlight that you know wait there actually is support from part of the population wanting to to join yes. Russia. Yes. So I wouldn't yes. I wouldn't raise this point to say you know had I been on a mainstream media panel. <laughs> you see, I'm saying I'm actually raising it with you here. Yeah. Just because I, you know, I, I know that uh, I know your work. So that's well, I that's why that's why you wouldn't be on a mainstream media panel is because they wouldn't let anyone on who would ask that question and acknowledge those people because they don't count. We only want to acknowledge Ukrainians who fit into the narrative, you know, and we have to erase everybody who the people we've been bombing for the last eight years, uh, the people who have suffered under a war that should have never started and could have been ended a long time ago. And, you know, I have a I have a Ukrainian friend who says two things I find really interesting. He says the people in the Donbass have more in common with like, you know, coal miners in the U S than they do with anybody in Moscow or in Kiev. That's just a very industrial region. They care about hard work, uh, and, uh, you know, and, you know, sustaining their industries and providing for their families. But in terms of like nationalist fervor, whether they see themselves as like, ethnically hardcore Russian or not. It's just not, it's not people's top concern. It's more, they're more identified with their industries, uh, with their trade. And uh, this war has sort of forced people, I guess, to pick different camps. But he says that's not really what historically the Donbass region has, has always been about. Even though, you know, there are millions of people there who speak Russian and identify as Russian. But in terms of what drives them, it was never about nationality. But he also said that like, if, you know, Western Ukraine wanted to break off and form um, Banderistan or, or whatever, then none of these people would care and that nobody would care and nobody would try to wa wa wage a war against them. Right. Because they don't, they, they just don't have that kind of nationalistic uh, identity as those in the West of Ukraine do, especially those who identify with, with Bandera. And just what's so weird about us policy is that it's forced Ukraine into a situation where, it has to pick the sort of Bandera tendency and it just doesn't make any sense. Like, and why is it wor worth risking a, a world war over? Right. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you taking my call. Thank you for the call. Okay. Chip. Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Great. So I want to say a few things. Uh, great work on Duma. Great work with your presentation to the UN great work with a whole bunch of other things. I might want to debate you with respect to your your evaluation of January 6th, but if I agreed with you on everything, I'd just be a clone. So um, anyway, but, and all of that sort of pales in comparison with what I really wanted to talk to you about. Back in June, July, I wrote a 5,000-word essay entitled how the United States drove Russia to invade Ukraine. So that kind of gives you an idea of where I'm coming from. However, uh, this business with Putin annexing the four oblasts 
lately concerns me. I, if there was a 15% chance of negotiations, and maybe that's generous, I don't know, but once he did the annexation, it sort of drives those chances to almost zero, I'm afraid. Um, in addition, uh, there, did you ever see the movie Crimson Tide? I don't think so, no. Okay, so the premise of Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman are on a submarine with nuclear weapons. There's a revolution in Russia, and somebody takes over this Vaspol uh, nuclear submarine base, and it's a threat of nuclear war. The concept being that the Russian government has collapsed. So my question is, what happens if Putin does go away? I mean, it's sort of like, be careful what you wish for. Um, and then the other item I just wanted to, I'm, I'm just throwing things out and hopefully you can glom together some sort of a response. According to CBS, 30% of the weapons that we're sending over there are not making it to the front lines. They're being distributed, I suppose, by Azov and Right Sector and C-14. What? Who knows where they're going? But you would have thought that after giving Stinger missiles to the Taliban back in Afghanistan in the 1980s and what came from that, we might have learned our lesson, but clearly not. Anyway, I, I know those are three different conceptual ideas, but I was just wondering what you thought of all that. Um, well, look, in terms of what would come after uh, Putin, I think the consensus is it would be someone far more hawkish. Because, I think you're right, yeah. Uh, Putin has faced criticism from inside the Russian establishment for not being aggressive enough. But do you, think, do you think that the thing would hold together is the question? I mean, I don't know that that's true. Do I think Russia would hold together? Right. Well, I mean, that's the other question is, you know, he's, Putin seems the only person. But, you know, I listen, I, to me, that's just so speculative that who, who knows? Okay, all right, all right. But it, it, it is true that he is, you know, does he's just he plays a um, th there's been no one groomed to replace him and his role is just it's you can't um, downplay how big it is it's it's huge and so if he were not there if he were somehow overthrown there'd be a lot of uncertainty right uh, and uh, I don't think I don't think it would be very stable personally but who knows no that's the point I think that's my concern yeah and on the latter uh, question of you know who the US uh, you know, goes to war with. Uh, last year, I interviewed uh, a former CIA analyst named David McCloskey, who, who wrote a book about Syria, uh, but it was a novel. And that was his way to basically talk about Syria while, while not, I think, violating all his, his, confidential, his confidentiality agreements as a former CIA analyst. And he, he was on the Syria desk. So he, his, his, his job was to write analysis about what was going on in Syria. So he was very well read, into, read he was very well read in to all the intelligence the US had on Syria. And the US of course, as we know now from from declassified documents, the US knew that its ally was an insurgency dominated by al-Qaeda. They knew that. Right. Um, we know that Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton in February 2012, al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. We well, I mean, our... didn't didn't Kerry wasn't Kerry caught on tape talking about how we were trying to groom al-Qaeda? Kerry was caught on tape saying that the U.S. was watching as ISIS was advancing on Damascus, and the U.S. sat back and watched in the hopes that ISIS would uh, help 
Assad negotiate his way out of power and let the U.S. put in someone that, that the U.S. wanted to lead Syria. So basically, Kerry admitted that the U.S. was leveraging ISIS's advance to force regime change. Right. And so I asked uh, David McCloskey, if, you know, was there any debate inside the government, inside the CIA, inside the administration about like whether or not it was wise, I mean, put aside moral, whether it was wise to side with an insurgency that they knew was dominated by al-Qaeda? And this is just 10 years after al-Qaeda attacked the U.S. on 9-11 and we're right. supposed to be waging a global terror. And he said no. He said there was very – he <laughs> said no, no. And he, it, it seemed to me he hadn't with himself really thought about that question. And I guess what happens is when you're in that position, you know, you, you become so consumed by just pursuing the policy, whatever it is. Yes. And so, and so driven by overthrowing these um, uh, these disobedient rulers who don't – who refuse to submit to U.S. control – that that just becomes paramount. You can't really think of anything else. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to crowd out whoever's waiting, but I did have one other thing I wanted to ask you, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, so in the essay that I mentioned to you, I made a comparison between today and 1914. And foundationally, what happened was a series of unplanned escalations took the conflict that should that Austria-Hungary thought would be between Austria-Hungary and Serbia into a world war that extinguished 20 million souls. What's happening today, it, it was characterized by a set of treaties that tied everybody together in this very unstable manner. And in addition, there were pre-existing hostilities between nations that existed at the time. All three of these things are precisely what's happening today. And when I wrote the essay, the last line I wrote was, this is 1914 Redux, but this time with nuclear weapons. Um, I listened to the interview, I think it was you, did with, uh, oh God, the colonel. Why am I spacing on his name? Um... Come on, sorry, um, Colonel, 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 you know him, uh, McGregor. And he seems to think that the threat of nuclear war is, is minimal. What do you think? Well, uh, yeah, I'm not particularly uh... – well, look, I wouldn't say it's minimal, uh, but I do think that it's been maybe overblown and – Russia's doctrine hasn't changed, and uh, so so even if Russia is under threat <clears throat> in one of these new oblasts that it's annexed, I don't think Russia would use nuclear weapons there. Um, but the I point, think, I guess, the thing that concerns me is the tripwire is some guy in an F sixteen gets knocked out of the sky, things begin to unravel, and nobody can control anything anymore. Not so dissimilar from sixty two. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's been other times in history, even more recently, where right, just sure. misunderstandings. Right, right. That's what has, I mean, everybody's on hair trigger right now, and this yeah. is very unnerving. Yeah, so so the point is we shouldn't even be in this position where it's even. You're absolutely, yes. Possible. Okay. Thank you, Chip, for the call. Thank you. Take care. You too. Okay. Andrew. And then we'll wrap it up. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Thanks for calling. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um couple of questions. Uh, one is, sorry if it's a little similar, but I'm just curious. With all of the annexation of the new territories in Ukraine, 
I mean, I could see them even taking over all of the territory up to the Dnieper River and this war not end. Um, so I wonder, like, do you still think that there is a path to negotiation kind of similar to a couple of questions I heard other people ask? And what is it? Because at this point, I think that with the hardliners, um, you know, who are more hawkish than Putin, like um, Kadyrov and the uh, the communists and the, the Wagner group and all sorts of other factions in Russia, um, I don't see them saying, OK, you can have this territory back. Yeah. The most I could possibly see would be like dual governance. But then from Russia's perspective, if you have a loose, you know, a permeable border, you're going to have way more bombings of bridges, of critical infrastructure, assassinations of more, uh, uh, you know, Daria, um, what's her, I Dugina. can't remember. Yeah, Dugina. Um, I just don't see this ever slowing down unless Europe and the United States literally run out of weapons to send. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm curious, just your, your thoughts on what, you know, I know that um, you, you've had a lot of interviews, I think, with good diplomats. What do you think someone like Chaz would say? Um, you know, you just spoke with McGregor. I, I'm Unfortunately, I'm not sub to the sub stack, so I didn't see the whole interview, but I did watch what was on YouTube. And I'm curious what you would say personally or what you think some of these other more seasoned uh, diplomats would say about how do you offer an, uh, a negotiated settlement at this point? Uh, with the reality that I don't think Russia will give up the territory. Yeah. And I yeah. think that the invasion has done similarly to like the U.S. Uh, violent sort of uh, blund, you know, bumbling presence in Africa and the Middle East being the best recruitment material for terrorists. Like Russia's invasion is the best recruitment material for right sector Azov types. Right. Right. So I don't know. I'll shut up and let you, let you respond. Yeah, well, I have so, another question. Yeah. So right when the annexation votes were happening. Um, Anatole Levin, who's a veteran journalist and he's with the Quincy Institute, put out an article saying that, you know, Putin couldn't, doesn't have to recognize the results of these votes. And in fact, he could use the results as a bargaining chip to say, all right, let's make peace. And in return, I won't recognize these annexation referendums. Well, that didn't work out because Putin did recognize these annexation referendums and uh, signed the decree. And after doing that, Will he ever give those back, or at least will he ever voluntarily give those back to Ukraine? I seriously doubt it. I, 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 I strongly doubt it. And so at this point then, how does it end? I just think it, it ends with either Russia surrendering or Ukraine surrendering. Uh, I don't see, I don't see any, any other alternative. Um, and that's just the sad fact. Yeah. I, I also wanted to get your take generally on um, Paul Jay. Uh, aside from you, he's the other Canuck uh, journalist who I I will frequently tune into, and he's had a couple of very interesting thoughts about this um, from himself or from people he's interviewed. He's been interviewing Larry Wilkerson very frequently about this war, and Wilkerson's take was, if there's a sea change in the U.S. policy establishment, which I don't see happening for at least two years. And even then, um, I don't see a lot of daylight between Trump and Biden's foreign policy team. You know, Trump's statements and Biden's statements about this war are quite different, but we saw uh, that you can't really take any of Trump's 
statements for that they're worth anything anything but what wilkerson was saying is if he if he had the the president and the state department's ear he would say look we're going to negotiate with russia directly so blinken go and talk to lavrov and you're going to say uh to to ukraine that we won't risk nuclear war over your territorial sovereignty and then a separate point that paul jay has made not necess- not specifically in context of these interviews with wilkerson is that because there's you know there's very much like marginal differences i mean there may be quality of life improvements being part of the russian federation versus ukraine especially over the past few years uh but really if you're fighting in this war um on either side you're fighting for um you know for one set of oligarchs to control this territory or another and paul's assessment is that it's actually even all the people who have fought on the ukrainian side you know he said on the russian side is kind of a given that they're fighting for relatively speaking nothing um and on the ukrainian side as well because you're not you're not doing much to change the material circumstances for people so he said, for from his point of view, he'd like to see um, more of like a general strike, mass protest in the street, and see how serious the Russians are about their rhetoric about the Ukrainians being a brother people, and how far are they willing to really go? Um, yeah, with this uh, right, but the but the problem with that is yeah. that that assumes that there is massive popular opposition inside. Uh, Russia to the war, and and I think what Paul is missing there is this no, is not just for Ukrainians. Ukrainians okay, to well, general strike and and, right, but, and yeah, flood but, the streets, right, rather than well, to fight a military re- retaliation. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to tell people who are living uh, under bombardment what to do. You know, um, for sure. And and I think what his analysis in, in, in making this just about like, oligarch oligarchs versus oligarchs, um, he's missing that the fact is. There is a um, split inside Ukraine, and yeah, that's cultural and it's ideological. There, are, there, are, there are the Banderites, who yes, I mean they're they're backed by oligarchs, but they're also driven by real hatred towards Russian culture, and they've been wanting to erase Russian culture from Ukraine for the last eight years. Uh, I mean, for longer, but 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 the war has been to you know to punish the people of the Donbas for for rising up. Yeah. And that's not, that's not like a, that doesn't come from commercial interests. Like oligarch, that's just uh, a divided country engaged in a civil war and the U S taking advantage of that for its own ends. So I, I don't, to say that this is just about oligarchs, I think is a bit narrow minded. Okay. Well, um, one last thing that I just wanted to get your take on and then I'll make room. Cause I see you have another person I know you want to wrap up is, um, I hear a lot of people will say, uh, well, first of all, I thought your response to the, the question from the earlier caller about Iran was spot on. I, I don't understand how people think that, oh, because this this nation is bad, they may actually be, you know, horribly oppressive, like as we've seen in Iran is true. Um, therefore, because they're bad, we can be bad to them. It's just such a preschool type of mentality that I don't understand mm-hmm. how people will will really argue that point and i will often make the point in you know conversations in person or on call and that um it's no excuse to sanction another country or to to you know poke at their borders with military you know exercises in big air quotes yeah um 
just because their government is bad. And you can take North Korea and Cuba as two examples to exactly what you've said, which is that most often sanctions aren't even effective policy for regime change. They just create economic isolation. So I, I, I appreciate how you handled that point. But the other the other thing more specifically to Ukraine is um, is people uh, will often repeat over and over and over again in the chat or in, in conversation on Colin that if, if Russia gives up, then the war ends. And if Ukraine gives up, then Ukraine ends. And I just don't think that that's backed up by any evidence because of just what you said. I mean, this war was happening and, it, you know, no matter how small you think the the real Banderite um, fascist society, societal movement, not just the the military aspect is, it is a real thing. It has had a lot of outsized power over the government in perpetuating the war. So the war would clearly not end. And I wonder what do you think, like Zelensky is an actor. Um, he's He's been pretty much doing what he's told and if not even trying to play like sort of the mad dog character so that the the Bidens and other NATO heads can look a little bit like they're they're yeah. being balanced. Um, but he's surrounded by people on a daily basis that have Nazi tattoos, patches, yeah. yeah. affiliations. Yeah. And I wonder yeah. what do you think about that? Like I thought some of the work that the Gray Zone published on uh, various different times that and it's in other newspapers as well, on various times that Zelensky tried to actually fulfill the Minsk Accords and tell these people to stand down, they ultimately threatened his life. And I wonder what you think about that also being an impediment to um, to negotiating. Well, look, I I mean, I've written about this, that that every time Zelensky tried to make a gesture towards implementing Minsk, he was threatened. And there was there's a video of him going to the front lines and meeting with the Azov battalion. And they and they laughed at him and said, we're not going to follow your orders. And he says, what do you what do you mean? I'm the president. You have to. I'm not a loser. And they humiliated him. Now, I don't know, though, if Zelensky just wasn't acting, too, because Zelensky also was supported by an oligarch who was the main funder of the Azov battalion. I mentioned that earlier. So whether Zelensky was sincere or not, I don't know. What I do know is that the mandate that he that he went on, that he ran on, was undermined by the far right and possibly by Zelensky's own cynicism himself. But um, it just shows how tragic it is that people go out and vote for someone they have a lot of hope he got a huge mandate and he didn't follow through and now we're in the situation that that we're in now and we're going to wrap it there because we're out of time andrew thanks for the call and thanks everybody else who called in i really appreciate you spending the time and to everyone who uh who listened in thank you and i'll be back uh next time on am live have a great rest of your have a great rest of your day bye everybody